Welcome back to the Not Almost There podcast. I'm Joe Chura, your host. Today's guest is Patty Morrissey, who is the founder and head coach at Clear and Cultivate and the creator of the Clear and Cultivate method. Patty spent her career in social work, higher education, tech startups, philanthropy, and consulting. She's applying her experience to unpack both the physical and emotional stuff that's getting in your way, my way, our way, so that we can all become the person we're meant to be. Patty's a coach, she's a Kanmari consultant, and a whole lot more. Patty believes our own definition of success is the only one that matters. In this episode, Patty challenges you to reflect on your life and create your own life KPIs. She encourages you through reflecting on what life would look like and replay when we're 100 years old. And then we talk about creating your alter ego and trying out new challenges before fully committing so you set yourself up for optimal achievement. We, of course, talk about a ton of books and a bunch of other stuff. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy. So I have Patty Morrissey here of Clear and Cultivate. Patty, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. I'm excited to be here. One of the things that you say is your own, your definition of success is the only one that matters. Yeah. And I, I love that quote because often we, I know I, you're always kind of searching for something else and you're wondering if that is for your true authentic self or you're trying to please someone else. Can you talk to me about how you came up with that and what it means to you? Yeah. How did I come up with it? Well, I I came up with it really just through trial and error because I was born into a family where I was, wasn't given any kind of script. And so the question, you know, we, we both are in the BYLR community and Jim Quick said, we live our lives with a dominant question. And I thought that was a really powerful thing that he put out there. And I, and I guess I realized, and maybe it's a little sad, but my my dominant question had been, and I'm trying to work on evolving it, has been, you know, what do I need to do to be loved? And there was no right answer in my family. And so that's pretty chaotic. So I realized that, you know, in school, it meant being obedient. With my boyfriend, it meant something else. With my best friends, it meant something else. With my grandparents, it meant something else. So I got very good at being a chameleon and playing the rules that I needed to play in order to be loved in those relationships and in those situations. And I never really asked myself, what do I want? What does it mean to me to live a good life? And so it really took getting to a rock bottom place where I found myself really miserable, really unhealthy, um, in a marriage that was not working out very well, uh, in, a, in a very toxic job. And I, I felt like I was giving everything I had to everything I was engaged in and there was nothing left for me. And that wasn't, I, I was seeing the, the downside of that. I was going to deplete all my resources. And so I had to kind of draw a line in the sand and I had to figure out what that was. And so I was very inspired by Ben Franklin 
Ben Franklin lived by 13 virtues that he deemed key for living a good life. And he would carry around a little notebook and ask himself, what good shall I do today? And what good did I do today? And he would score himself. And so that was the inspiration to me to take my philosophy about who I was as a person. I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm loving, I care about making the world a better place. I, you know, aspire to be healthy. I aspire to be a, a good mother, a good friend. Um, but what did that mean in terms of actual metrics? Uh, and so I just did some reflection on the, you know, sitting on the train on the way to my commute. I had a four hour commute in total, two hours each way, door to door. And so one of those commutes, I sat down and listed, well, what does it mean for me to live a good life? What are my rules? And it was really basic stuff like taking walks in nature, visiting with friends, having a, you know, a, a healthy BMI, you know, for the best metric I could think of for health. And that's when I, I started to change my life. It was my way of setting boundaries with everything else I was involved in. And I couldn't serve them if I wasn't serving these things first. And you call those lifestyle KPIs. Yeah, life KPIs. And how often, or how do you go about the process of creating your life KPIs and how often do you modify them and look at them? Yeah, you know, and I don't track them so religiously anymore, but I think what I've come to understand is that they're a great device to bring you from kind of that stuck place that I was in where maybe you feel like you're, you're doing everything to please everyone else. A lot of my clients are people pleaser personality types. So this really resonates with them. Um, and so I just had to figure out, you know, what is what does it mean for me to live a good life? So it was very basic. I just kind of imagined myself, I'm a hundred years old and I'm looking back on my life and I'm evaluating whether it was good or not. And so what would need to play out in that movie for that to be true, that I lived a good life? What were the scenes? And I just let it happen. And the things that popped up were, you know, memories with my daughter, that I was healthy and had, you know, vibrant energy, that I was doing cool new stuff all the time, um, that I spent a lot of time out outdoors, that I was in kind of an energetic state that was really peaceful and serene. Um, so th those were some of the things. And so then I, I identified some of these major life buckets like family, friends, health, mental health. And then I just thought, you know, what's the best metric for this? What's a good enough KPI indicator that if, if I'm getting walks in nature, it's a pretty good indicator that my mental health is in the right place. So it's not the metric, it's not a perfect metric, but it's a pretty good indicator uh, of how things are doing. So. At first, I needed it, like I was tracking it every day. And the first week that I tracked it, it was zero. My dashboard, I was failing at my life. And I admitted that to a staff meeting full of 80 people. And I just started crying in front of everyone of how pathetic and sad that was. And it really helped me, it helped me set boundaries. And so I, you know, got, I started to not, work as long at my job and people didn't like that, right? But I knew it was necessary because if it required, if this job requires me to work 15 hours a day and plus my four hour commute every day, it's not a job that I should have. 
it's there's too much cost involved in that in terms of my quality of life. So at first, when I was learning to set boundaries, identifying where the boundaries needed to be set, tracking every day was important. But now it's more of an indicator, like if I'm feeling a little bit off, I'm like, what's like I'm I'm in a funk. Do I need a therapist? What's going on? You know, and you start telling yourself all these stories. And then I go look and I'm like, all right, when's the last time you had a a, a nice just visit with a good friend? When's the last time you took that walk in nature? And it's like, yeah, it's been a while. So I just do the things that I know work for me and it gets me right back on track. So the you mentioned something when you're a hundred years old and you look back and I've recently I've recently done an exercise like that called the deathbed exercise. It's like mm. you're lying on your deathbed and you're you're thinking about life and that point, what matters to you? And immediately what's you know, what gets thrown out? Money, that doesn't matter. Your job, that you know, that can matter, but matters less. And you immediately, or at least for my, myself, I immediately went to my kids, mm -hmm. my family, my friends. And that is such a good exercise for those that are listening is just imagine yourself there. So I love what, what you said. And that's so profound in the sense that you're, you're thinking about your, your hundred and you're playing this movie back. And what is that? You know, what is that movie? And who would, I mean, you could go so far as like, who would be the actor and what would, what would the movie be called? So I think that's a really good practical tip for how to, how do you identify the gaps? Cause that's what the deathbed exercise does. It, it looks at here's where you are now, here's where you want to be. And what do you need to start doing and changing your life? So that uh, hero's journey narrative work of viewing your life like it's a story in a film is very effective. Um, I was first introduced to that, well, in a few different ways. I, first of all, I overcame a, a fear of public speaking by taking improv classes and storytelling classes. So I learned really the art of storytelling through those channels. And then I discovered a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by Donald Miller. And this is where he learns the power of, of storytelling um, for, for transforming your life. And then he went on to create a, a, another company called StoryBrand. So that's for the entrepreneurs in the, in the room. Uh, it's really useful to think about the story that your, your business is creating in the world and, and its relationship to your customer. But you know, back, to, back to our life. So an exercise that I do with my clients and I do uh, an annual review every year and I, I take them from where they are today and I play the movie that's already happened. You know, what is the movie trailer of your life that has already happened? We cannot redo that. And what that immediately does is give them perspective. So they get to see what they've overcome. They get to see who the key players were, who their champions were, who the villains were. They, they get to reflect now from a more stable place of, you know, I had over, I've overcome all this adversity. And so then I share, you know, the most interesting parts of the story are the ones that were most challenging. If the story was just like, I woke up and had a normal day and life was easy and good, there would be no story. But you're, when you're looking back, you're like, yeah, I had all that doubt and I wasn't sure if it was possible, but I really wanted to attempt it. And I tried it and I failed a few times. And then I finally found the thing and now I, I am where I am. And so that helps them now when they're 
shaping the life that they want in the future to be able to recognize when those obstacles show up, it's the, the reaction is like, about time. I knew you were coming. This is supposed to be happening right now. It doesn't mean I'm on the wrong path. So I'm a little bit in that moment too. I'm kind of transitioning my business a little bit and it's a little bit unknown. Is it going to work out? Are people going to resonate with my message? I don't know. What's the revenue model? I'm trying to figure it out. So I can place myself right now. This is the gritty part of the story where nothing is guaranteed. And I'm in it. And it's good. And no matter what happens in three years, I can look back and say, I did everything I could. And it was a fun ride. Yeah. And just, just hearing that, that last, uh, those last comments makes me think of Jesse Itzler a ton. And I know you and I are both fans of, of his, but in, in living with a, a monk, I wrote this quote down yesterday. I, and you know, the way he writes is so hilarious and engaging but this i thought was really profound and it goes to exactly what you're saying is like people are always waiting for something to happen before they change their lives Mm. but they have it backwards when you change your life big things are more likely to happen yeah yeah. and and that's so true and that's and that's what you're saying and he he goes into this and now or this example of his friend he went to his friend and he said you know, what if I gave you $10 million, what would you do? And the first thing is his friend came back and said, is I would move to California. And he goes, well, I'm not going to give you $10 million, but why don't you just move to California? <laughs> right. Right. And he goes, even if you don't know what's going to happen, at least you're doing something you want to do and you're taking that leap forward. Mm-hmm. And you'll have a story to tell from it. And I, and that's exactly what you're saying is, is, you know, like sometimes you just don't know, but mm-hmm. what I, what I know and, and from my life is like nothing great is easy. Right. And when you're comfortable, there's something wrong mm-hmm. or, or you got to like start to get uncomfortable to start to grow. Um, so I think that's yeah, the, uh, the phrase that's been hitting me lately is the choose your hard idea of it's supposed to be hard this is life but just you know being stuck in a bad relationship is hard so is being on your own right uh entrepreneurship is hard but so is having to do what a boss tells you all day is hard you know uh exercise is hard but so is being unhealthy and sick so it's very much more of that stoicism of, of choosing the hard that you want. And I love what Jim Quick says too. You referenced him earlier. Yeah. And I think it, it's something to the tune of, you know, the harder you work now, the easier life becomes. The easier you take it now, you know, the harder life be, life will get, you know, later. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, tells me that you have to put in the work. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things that I found fascinating with uh, your story too is how you use vision boards, and I know you had talked about these visual exercises, and I think those are really important for people. What about the use of vision boards, and when did you start to introduce those? I was introduced to them at a New Year's Day party, you know, a, a 
cousin of one of my good friends. And so I had no expectations. I hadn't read The Secret. I just put some stuff on a board and then it started happening. It was, it was really interesting to see. And um, th that was the first board that I made. And I even tucked it away for a few months because I was traveling um, after graduate school. And I came back to a new apartment and I was opening up my boxes. And then there in the picture was a picture of a home office with the word entrepreneur. And it had this very specific color of green wall. And I was living with a friend um, in his spare bedroom. And it was the exact same wall. It even had like very similar design of this like cork in the picture. So there were just little things like that that serve as omens to me that I'm kind of going on the right path. But they've they've evolved. Um, you know, generally I approach vision boarding as a way of discovery more than, I, I don't have a, a checklist of things that I'm looking for in pictures and then making a, a collage out of that. But it's more of just an openness to what do I really want? What are my desires? What's resonating with me? And so I will go through the magazines and just keep flipping and flipping and flipping pages. And whatever comes out that speaks to me, that gives me that spark joy feeling, which is something as a, as a KonMari consultant in the, the KonMari method, we train people on how to, how to tap into that feeling of resonance, of joy and aliveness. So I'm, I have a pretty close relationship with it now. So I recognize it when it comes and I don't question it. It's just like, okay, I don't know why there's a picture of, you know, a woman dancing in the street in a polka dot dress, but I just have to rip it out and put it on the board and see what happens. Um, and it just keeps me focused, keeps me, um, it trains me when I look at my vision boards and I'm looking at one right now, it trains me on how I want to feel all the time. And so what it does is guide my daily actions because I'll, I'll be feeling off and I'll look at that and I'll realize like I'm on the wrong path. Like that, that's how I want to feel. So a very simple examples. I was in a relationship. This was meant, you know, 12 years ago or something. And there, I had this couple on the board and there was something about their chemistry that I knew was really attractive to me. And so I was in this relationship. There was nothing wrong with it. He's a nice person. We got along. We never fought. But one day I just like looked at him and I go, you know, there's like no spark here. And he's like, yeah, no spark. And we just like shook hands and went our separate ways and, and we're still really good friends. So it was just kind of recognizing that, you know, here's how I want to feel and my life isn't feeling that way. So what's got to change? What do I have to, to move around? And just trusting that if I follow that feeling, I'll, I'll be guided in the right way. That's, that is uh, a pretty funny story. <laughs> Although now... So I, I can't throw away my vision boards, just they're too personal to me. So I had them just in a roll, like, you know, a bunch of uh, yeah. poster board in a roll. And I have this kind of like half finished basement and had some like scuffs and holes on the wall and down there, like a typical dingy basement. And I was like, you know, I've got all these vision boards. So I just like plastered them up everywhere. And my brother came over and he's like, it looks like a motivational serial killer that's in here. So you can go, you know, it's like 15 years worth of vision boards. So you, uh, for the people listening to, if you don't have access to magazines, I saw you, you have a Pinterest page where you, you post images and, and clips mm -hmm. there as well. 
Yeah, Pinterest Pinterest can be useful. Um, I like Pinterest a little bit more when I'm um, planning something a little bit more specific. Uh, it's one of the first places I go with kind of the dreaming and scheming phase of things. Right now I'm making a, a home gym, so I'm having fun playing around in there. Yesterday I led a workshop where we, we crafted alter egos. And so I was having everyone live in the workshop use Pinterest to make a little collage of who their ideal alter ego self is. That was really fun. Speaking of that, I thought in reading about you and, and how you go about your your client meetings that the alter ego was very fascinating to me. And mm -hmm. and I've I've personally gotten through my fear of public speaking years ago by creating an alter ego. Mm. And and it's not necessarily a person, but an archetype of various people that have inspired me in the sense that how they carry themselves. But the way you you go about it, you talk about it and how to create this and how to overcome your fears by creating the alter ego, I think it's important for the audience to understand. Can you get into that a little bit and how someone can go about that? Yeah, well, when you listen to interviews with people who've accomplished something or you read autobiographies, which which I'm doing more of, like I just read uh, Alicia Keys' autobiography, you realize they're just normal people. Or David Goggins, I read David Goggins' autobiography and he really needed to call out, like, stop making me special. Stop pretending like my uh, DNA is any different than yours. Or I'm reading the Wim Hof book now and he says the same thing, like, I'm not a genetic freak. I'm just someone who's committed to a practice. And often the stakes were high for them too. You know, when you're faced with kind of survival, uh, you have no choice but to take a risk. So I give my clients a lot of credit. You know, sometimes when I, I work with people either, so I call them, sometimes they're in crisis and sometimes they're just stuck. And the person who's just stuck often can be harder for me to work with because their life is fine. <laughs> When you ask them how they're doing, they're like, it's fine. My, I, you know, I can't complain. Others have it worse. Like these are all the things that they say to me. And so them taking a leap of faith to go do the thing that they wanna do that's maybe out of character for them or uh, risky in some way. And sometimes it's, fine. sometimes it's financially risky, sometimes it's physically risky, but mostly it's emotionally risky. Um, you know, what would people say? Who, who they're close to. And so that's harder because they actually need to dismantle the life that they have now in order to take that leap versus, you know, when you have nothing, you, you, you know, what's taking a leap, you're not going to be any worse off. Um, so crafting an alter ego is just recognizing that really anyone who's accomplished anything is just like you and me and that they've played some game where they've viewed themselves in a way and had to had to believe that they were worthy of the gifts that they've been given, um, worthy of following that bliss, following that inner light, following that joy, that spark joy feeling. Um, so I have people like just, you know, I'll just play out what we did yesterday. So I just did a, an open-ended brainstorm of if you could be anyone, who would you be? And it could be, I, I would be a magical unicorn crocodile. Like it doesn't matter. It, or I would be a combination of 
Britney Spears and Oprah, like whatever your vision is for who you'd want to be. And so, okay, great. What are their personality traits? What are their qualities? What do you admire? What are you jealous of that you see other people doing that you wish you had? And that's an open brainstorm. And then we make a character profile of them and start to you know, identify like what are their top five personality traits? What are they always wearing? What, what do they eat for breakfast? Just really, what, how do they spend a typical day? So we have a sense of who they are. And then I had everyone introduce their alter egos to the group. And they were so creative in describing different things. You know, someone had a woman named Charlotte who's always um, really polished and put together and has this like boho style on her house. And she um, is always patient with her kids and likes to take walks on the beach. Like nothing, she's not saying like win 20 Grammys. You know, she's, <laughs> this is all achievable stuff. So I would have them do that and then, excuse me, um, introduce their characters. And then the real kind of thing at the end is, why do we believe that that's not us already? And then they're like, but uh, you know, I'm flawed and I'm not, I'm not that outgoing and I'm not that, um, I could never, you know, and the, all of that kind of self-doubt starts to well up. And then I just say, you know, is that make-believe, this, this character that you've created, or is the, you know, bullshit story that you've created about your limitations true? And so we just start to play. And so this whole idea of trying on alter egos is a very playful thing. And so I said, you know, when your kid walks into the room with a Power Ranger costume and they're like acting it out and they're shooting things and they're kicking and yelling and playing, you don't go and they'll go like, I'm a Power Ranger. You don't go like, no, you're not, you loser. You're like, you're just a little kid, you loser. But that's how we talk to ourselves all the time. I'm not an, I'm, I could never. Um, so I just say, you know, at least start talking to yourself like you're your own child. Um, and say like, yeah, you are, you are Oprah and Britney Spears. And like, I love your talk show dance show thing that you have going on. Like, that's amazing. Like, go for it and see what starts to happen. And what starts to happen when you start showing up in the world this way is that people just applaud people being authentic and true to themselves. You know, the, the woman in the grocery store who's wearing like a yellow polka dot dress and just like living her best life like they're magnetic and vibrant and unapologetic and confident. And you can't help but smile, even though like it's a little countercultural. Um, it's amazing to witness people doing their thing and being in their element. And so alter egos, let us play with that a little bit. Yeah. And, and someone that comes to my mind who does that is like a Lady Gaga. Yeah. <laughs> she has multiple alter egos and, and, you look at sometimes what she wears and how she carries herself and you're like, what is she doing? But you're right. Like it's, it's admirable. Um, and watching that, the documentary that she did just gives you all, all new respect for it. Um, and for her and how she goes about her life. But the other, the other folks that, that I really admire is like David Goggins is another one that created an alter ego called Goggins. Right. And, and he needed to, to get in Goggins to one, put his, his past aside 
and not that not let that limit him going forward. And Goggins became the superhero. And uh, he was actually, I had the pleasure of, of doing a run with him. He came to my house last year wow. before Refuel. He's one of our keynote speakers. And it was surreal because he, he is, this is kind of an embarrassing story. So he, he comes in my house. I have about 40 people here geared up and just super fans. Like Goggins is going to be here. We're going to do a run. It's 5 a.m., maybe 515 Chicago weather, December, 15 degrees outside, snowing. And he pulls up, comes in the house, and everyone's just kind of staring at him. We're just, we're all just like, wow. Cause we've all read the book, you know, and we're like, yeah. here's Goggins. And, and uh, I started off the run with him. And I, you know, the first thing I say is, listen, I, I am uh, not a super fast runner, you know? So I'm just like, <laughs> basically in a nice way telling him like, please don't go, crazy right now because i'm not gonna be able to keep up and i'd love to to uh, run with you so i'm running with him and he's dead silent and he's just he's running we have our headlamps on and i was like all right this is bizarre so i put in my earbuds he's next to me and i have this playlist on spotify where he's talking over like just like you know rap music and like music to pump you up so i'm running and i'm looking at him and I'm hearing him, but it's not him, the him next to me. And it was the most surreal experience. So we ended up running like five miles. We stopped a quarter of the way and did, I don't even like a thousand jumping, probably not a thousand jumping jacks, but it seemed like they never ended. Like jumping jacks, push-ups, you know, the, the grass was completely, uh, you know, frosted and our hands are frozen. It was one of the coolest experiences. Mm. And so many people that, that did it were like, were afraid, including myself, like, and you're working out with Goggins <laughs> you know, after hearing all that, but he didn't or wouldn't have got to the place that he ended up at without creating this alter ego. So I love that you are reviewing that with your clients and you're going over that and you're getting them to think about that. And I think people listening to this need to think about that because it gets you through these obstacles and you're like, hey, that's not me. That's my alter ego. You know, just like you said, you know, that kid that's a superhero. Yeah, you get to you get to try it on. And and you know, these big examples are 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 great evidence that this works, you know, Beyonce and Sasha Fierce and all these examples, but even on a, a more daily level. So, you know, one of my clients shared that she she has um an alter ego that she calls perpetual girlfriend with her husband. So she is never the wife. She is a perpetual girlfriend. And so what does the girlfriend do, right? The girlfriend is interested in football. The girlfriend wants to hear what he has to say all the time. The girlfriend has patience for certain things. The girlfriend shaves her legs. The girlfriend, not that she's this like submissive, obedient, you know, girlfriend, but she's like girlfriend mode. So her relationship is like still really hot and connected and awesome. And she wants her alone time and she wants him to have his alone time. And she goes out with her girlfriends and girl, perpetual girlfriend is, you know, she's not gonna win any prizes for that, but it's certainly enhancing her marriage. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So people that are listening to this, I know at least some of them are probably like, how do I even get started in, to creating 
a new definition of, of success, thinking about your life in retrospective, taking the steps at creating this alter ego, what do you, what do you say to your clients or to folks that one, I guess let's start with getting started. What are the first things someone can do? Mm, well, I have a bunch of worksheets, you know, and we're building out the resources uh, section of my site so that some of these things are, are just there and available. Uh, usually there's some sort of triggering event that prompts someone to do this kind of work. Either they're sick of themselves, someone has invited them and kind of served as a catalyst. In, for my clients, often there's a big, what I call a confrontation, you know, kind of like I experienced of like, I, if I don't do something about this, I don't know how I'm going to survive. I'm going to be sick. Something's going to happen. Um, often it's a breakup or a diagnosis or, you know, a, a big change in job um, or having a child or, you know, having your child leave the home and being an empty nester, retirement, just these big confrontations of like, I'm going through a major life transition that often happens um, that initiates people to do the work. I promote it being more of an ongoing process. So instead of letting life dictate when you do this kind of reflection and contemplation, making it more of a part of the rhythm of your life. So like I said, I do an annual review. I also do a daily review is something that I do. So that's a great place to start. So in my method, I have contemplating, clearing, cultivating, and connecting. And that's really, that's a, a comprehensive process of what I call self-renewal. So it always starts with contemplation of who am I? Where am I going? What's my story? What makes me come alive? What makes me feel drained? What do I even want? Because people can't go after the thing if they don't even know that they want it. It's much easier to go after the thing or change your behavior if you want it. Um, BJ Fogg from Stanford, uh, he's, he wrote Tiny Habits, says you, you know, start with the behaviors you actually want to change. Stop trying to build habits around things that you don't care about. So the motivation has to be there. So contemplation really helps with that. So the daily review is just a super simple exercise where at the end of your day, you look back on your day. And this is very similar to what Ben Franklin did. This is modeled after a Jesuit uh, spiritual exercises called the daily examine. So the daily review, you get still, you feel yourself surrounded by some source of unconditional love like a cloak, you know, you're kind of cloaking yourself in just that warm love that only a mother or like, you know, loving grandmother could give you. And you're revealing yourself about how your day went. So you share what you're grateful for. You share when you felt the most alive, the moments. You share when you felt the most drained. You also share what your shortcomings were. And you do this without any self-critical judgment you just kind of acknowledge like yeah I could have you know done that a little bit better and then you open yourself up for guidance on how do I make tomorrow a little bit better so it's this daily calibration you know for the the lean startup kind of techie guys or girls in, in the audience you know it's it's like agile development for your life of you know test it try it live a day come back reflect see how do you improve it tomorrow and just doing that exercise alone will give you a lot of intelligence about what you need to clear from your life. Because after five days of having a consistent pain point that's draining you every day, you're like, what gives? Something's got to change about this. 
Um, and then the cultivation piece is just, we can't predict what's going to happen. We can't predict what's next. So we just have to stay open to trying new things and saying, you know, what am I curious about? I'm curious about uh, this person. I'm curious about this activity, this experience. I'm curious about how I might feel if I adopted a new habit. And so we start to play and dabble and see, you know, if we introduce those things to our life, how does it affect our daily review? Yeah, I do feel more alive when I do those things. So I'm going to keep doing them. And then the last piece, which is really important, which people don't think about intentionally, I don't think, um, is community and connection. So you're a community builder, you know, you're hosting events to bring people together. So I'm curious about your intention behind that. But the, the reason I call it out, it's, you know, people I think recognize that like accountability helps or being a part of like-minded people are good. You know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I agree with all of those things, but I also recognize growth often doesn't happen, personal growth doesn't happen because our growth is an immediate risk to the relationships that we have right now. So the connections we have right now will be threatened by your growth. When you start to improve, when you start to get healthy, when you start to get clear, the people around you say, what are you doing um, I like you fit perfectly in my little life puzzle the way you are. And if you change your shape, it's not going to work. And then I have to change my shape and I don't want to change my shape. And so then they keep you small. So it's really important as you're trying to grow yourself and change yourself to start um, cultivating relationships that are going to be supportive of that growth. You don't have to throw away the old relationships, but you need to recognize their limitations as you improve your life. That is great advice. And one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking through that, to think everything's very practical and how you go about it. And we'll, we'll link to uh, one of the worksheets. I know there was one that was created for BYLR and I'm sure there's, mm -hmm. there's other ones. So if you want to send me a link to, to one of those, I'm happy to, to do that. Cause I think it's important and the way it's organized is very, very practical. Um, as you were talking though, I couldn't, I always think about my, my children and I think about guidance for, for parents. This is mm -hmm. there's so much good advice here and how parents can change their, their, their lives um, for the better and how to think about things. What do you recommend for parents and how to start getting their children to adapt and adopt, I should say, some of these practices? Um, well, I have a nine-year-old and she is, you know, she makes fun of me all the time. I, she just, I just posted on Instagram this uh, <laughs> hilarious uh, in, impersonation of, of me doing my coaching work. So she, you know, she doesn't love it, um, but she absorbs it. She really does. And so with kids, it's, this isn't hard for them. We need them more than they need us. They don't have all the baggage of, you know, what am I curious about? Or what if I let go of this toy that someone gave me that was a gift? And what are they going to think? They just go, I'm not into it anymore. <laughs> and, but we're the ones who kind of 
but you know, you're, you're going to hurt your grandma's feelings or, oh, you know, I don't want you to throw away that toy because that was your baby toy. And you know, that there's memories associated with that. So we're the ones imposing all of this on them, or you're, you don't want to play trumpet. Trumpet's hard. You should play the flute. The flute is way easier. And we're doing all this stuff to them instead of just backing off. So my view of all of this is we don't really need to, to put so much effort into personal growth. We just need to create the right conditions to thrive. So I view my role as a parent, but also as you know, the self-parenting that I'm doing all the time. Instead of uh, you know, screaming at the flower in the garden and being like, grow already, I just go like, what does it need? Is it planted in the right place? Does it need water? Does it need rest? What does it need? And then like let it just do its thing. So what that looks like on a like very basic level with, with children is recognizing always who they're becoming and they're changing so rapidly. So it's such a good window for us, but it looks like going into my daughter's room and saying, you know, what do you like still? Are you into that game anymore? You know, what's your style like now? How do you want to show up in the world? And letting her just tell me what belongs in her life and honoring it. And even if I spent the money on the thing, you know, <laughs> we just, we just let it go. And I'm always creating room for her to become the person that she's meant to become. And so now she's really outspoken about like, mom, that's your dream. That's not my dream. She's a real clear sense of herself. And I listen to her now because she, she can vocalize that. So we've created that dialogue through decluttering. I know it sounds silly, but um, it really helps with the physical possessions as being a gateway into the different stages that your child is going through. And you honoring that and saying like, grow, that their growth, when, when we honor their growth, we're not losing them because parenting is just like one long separation. You know, they're physically a part of you. <laughs> they're attached to you for months and then they just keep separating. And the whole thing is, is very sad for parents. But the more we let them go, the less they have to fight back and it's safe for them to return because we're not holding them back. So you, you mentioned the detachment to physical things and, and uh, I read your, how you had to tackle paper and how you, you had to look at it in three different buckets. And I am guilty of throwing too much away because I don't like clutter. And I, one of the things I've really regret throwing away is a vision board that I created in 2013 mm -hmm. and it was, and I could have sworn I took a picture of the vision board because that's another way for me to, you know, maybe I don't need to keep this board, but I could take a picture of it to reflect Absolutely. on it, right? And I, I just, you know, I threw it out. I don't even know. I must have deleted the picture even, which I don't even know why why I, I did that. But what what is the relationship between organization, whether it's paper or your home and your life? Oh, I mean, that's such a big question. Um, so our, I, I'm grateful that there's more evidence now coming out about the power of environmental design. So that's sometimes the word I choose to use more than organizing. Organizing is, you know, what, what belongs, what should you keep and where does it go and finding a home for it. That's basically the nuts and bolts of organizing is having a dedicated 
home for something so that you don't have to think, where did I put it last? Um, and making sure that you have the volume of stuff that's appropriate for the space that you have and then your mental capacity to kind of manage it all. So that's organizing. Environmental design is, you know, what am I cultivating? What am I trying to create? What kind of behaviors do I want to trigger in this environment? And let me redesign the space to facilitate those things. So I've changed my entire house <laughs> this last year. I switched bedrooms with my daughter at the beginning of COVID. That was very exciting for, for her. Uh, I turned my guest room into a home office digital studio thing. Um, my living room was set up to be like, it looked like a therapist office. People would come in there like, do you do therapy in here? I'm like, no, it's like a conversation. I didn't have a TV in there. I like to have people come over and we would drink coffee or tea, or I'd have people come over at night. And it was all about connection and conversation, not doing that at the moment. Right. My kitchen table became like the chemistry art thing. It's like a mess, but I am like you know, let the girl play. What else is she going to do in this time? So we've got slime making supplies and glitter everywhere. It's, it's, it's insane down there in the kitchen. And then my basement, what my current project is, um, you know, we were grateful to have most of this pandemic in warm weather, but you know, I, I got COVID in November and I was like, I really need a plan B with the a real space for movement. So turning my basement, which was a playroom, which wasn't really being utilized very much into a legit like studio fitness space. So I just, I just did that this weekend and my daughter's already down there roller skating and dancing and we're having a great time down there. So the life that we're trying to create um, is prompted by the environment that we set up. So that's very much in line with what I was saying before is like the right conditions to thrive, to cultivate what you want. Um, so take a look, instead of beating yourself up at like, I'm lazy or I'm not cooking enough or I'm not hosting enough or I'm not whatever enough. Um, how is your environment that you're in actually supporting and facilitating that behavior? How is it, do you wanna have more conversations? Do you wanna have more sex? Do you wanna work out more? Like, do you wanna cook more? What, and how is your space going to enable that? Um, what people often do is look at beautiful pictures and they try to make their, their place attractive to other people or impressive to other people. Um, and they're not really thinking about how it's functioning and serving them. So mentioning uh, organization, one thing that I'd love to ask guests, because it is important for I think people to understand how successful people, and I say that in quotes, because I think success is something you're always, you got to prove it every day. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's important to look at the habits of others to model what mm -hmm. works for some. What does your day look like? Do you have a structured day? That's, you know, it, it, it kind of eludes me, honestly. And I think when I'm... <laughs> What I am coming to terms with is that um, I'm giving myself permission uh, to be unstructured about it, right? And what makes, when I've done my reflection exercises for years, I'll go back on journals and always what it says is slow coffee in the morning. You know, and I did, I did a 30 day self-care experiment. That's one of the things I encourage people to do is just you know, you heard something's good for you, 
structuring your day? Um, how do you go about it? And so I tried to get up at 5 a.m. every day and it was like, just not for me. So I realized, okay, I'm more of a night owl. Let's embrace the natural tendencies of how I am. That being said, I do create bigger, like I'm into time blocking structure. So I'm not good at, I'm not a fan of multitasking, you know, different strokes for different folks, but um, what is a typical week look like for me? And I look at like the life KPIs buckets and I slot those things in first, very much in line with what Jesse Itzler would say of plan your life first and your meetings next. But so I'm looking at my calendar and I go, all right, I need time for that nature walk. I need time for this workout plan that I'm doing now. Uh, I generally have, you know, Friday night date night is, is kind of a sacred thing. And so I have some of those. And so I don't really think about it. And then the rest of it is like free for me to engage with what's most important that day in that moment, because things pop up or things change. And as you know, being an entrepreneur, um, things are always looking a little bit different. Something that I have started to do, which uh, I really help to go on top of my time blocking is themed days. So today is content day. So when I was going back and forth scheduling, I was like, yeah, pick a Monday because Monday's content day. And then Tuesday is program day where I really think about the programs that I'm running and I work on my worksheets and, and plan out those kinds of things. And then Friday is loose ends day. So that's when I'm just hitting the blitz. And it's so helpful because something will pop up on Tuesday that's like a loose end situation and I'll just put it into that time. But it's not like I don't have a rigid wake up and then do this. And I'm like tracking my time. I find that to be kind of stressful. And I also feel like it might be, um, it might be a very male way of operating in the world. So there's this book, Woman Code, that's come out recently. And so this, I don't, I'm not an expert at this. It's just an area that I've been exploring. So it makes a lot of sense. And as I've been talking about with my clients, it makes a lot of sense to them too, of at different points in your cycle, you have different energy for different things. And so my week, right, it might not be the best, like, cause I'll experience that. It's like a creative week or it's a very detailed, like get stuff done kind of week. And so what does it look like to honor the energy that's coming up, but still making sure you're getting done what you need to get done. So that's the, that's the trick um, to try to figure out. And I'm still a work in progress when it comes to that stuff. I think what you said about experimenting is right on because I, I was, uh, yeah, I was inspired by guys like Jocko, Jocko Wilnick, you know, his, he shows a picture of his watch at 4.30 AM every day. And, and my wife and I were waking up at 5.30 uh, to work out. And we do that at least five days a week. Then I'm like, you know what? Am I pushing myself hard enough? Let me try 4.30. And it just, I just, yeah, I, I did it for a while, but I wouldn't feel good in the day. Like I just needed that extra hour in the morning. So even though, you know, you, I mean, my advice for people is even though you might be inspired by someone, find out what works for you, exactly what, what you said. And, and, you know, you touched on this earlier and then, then again, a few minutes ago, but not looking at things like so regimented, like, hey, this is what I did this hour. This is what I did even this day. You know, when I got a chance to talk to Jesse Itzler recently, he was like, you know, I look at it in weeks. And, mm -hmm. and you know, if I want to do Wim Hof breathing, which you, you brought up Wim, and you say, hey, I'm going to do this every day. And then all of a sudden, 
at the end of the week, you look at it and you're like, well, I only did it once or twice. And you feel like a failure versus like, hey, I want to get three sessions in this week. So I think that's a that's a really good perspective as well to to you know how to look at things and not how to how to judge yourself or make yourself feel like you have to follow a model of someone well, else. Well, and people commit to a model because they read about it before they've ever even tried it. Right. So it's just try it. See if you even like it and commit commit to trying it long enough to see if it plays out. And then incorporating it into your life will be pretty easy. Um, you know, I, I, I think sometimes why my, why my clients are attracted to working with me is because I'm a normal person. Like I'm, like I said, we're all normal people who, who do great things, but you know, it's not that long ago that I, I like never exercised ever. And how do you take a lazy person and convince them to exercise? Not by telling them to go out and run 20 miles a day, but I, you know, I took the tiny habits approach and it was like, all right, success is moving my body for 10 minutes a day. And then I just, I texted a friend who was a fitness coach and I said, listen, for a hundred days, I'm going to move my body for 10 minutes and I want emoji praise. I don't want advice on the best workout technique. I don't want you asking me what I'm eating. I don't want any of that. I just want full credit for doing something, dancing in my living room, walking around the block. I just needed to make it a habit. I needed to make it a part of my daily day. And it didn't take a hundred days. It took like 20 for me to fall in love with it. And I would go out for like, oh, okay, I'll go out for a walk. And then the walk became a jog and the jog became a run. And now I'm someone who loves exercise. All right. And now I'm ready to like take it to a real degree and like train for something. Um, but that was a years long thing. Whereas before the reason I was able to keep in shape, I used to live in Chicago and I used to bike every day. I worked at Groupon and I would bike every day from Edgewater, which is pretty North to Groupon. So I had like a 15 mile bike ride a day. I didn't have to exercise. It was just part of how I lived my life. Um, so when I moved here to Long Island, it was like all cars and all of a sudden I had gained weight and you know, had to think, oh, wow, I really do need to become that kind of person who makes time for this. How does that, how does, how do you do that? Um, and it's, it's slower than people realize you're not going to have this automatic return, but sustainable improvement and just being really kind and gentle to yourself. Yeah. I think to your point too, is finding something that you, you like my wife and I have started doing these evening walks. So kids are old enough to stay at home and you have cell phones just in case now. Oh, that's like a freedom marker. That is a micro season. I just yeah. hit that. Like I'm going to go to the grocery store for 10 minutes. That's yeah. incredible freedom. Yeah, we don't we don't veer off too much, but it's really nice to be able to do that. And we were walking last night and we and she was like, you know, I really want to do like she wants to do an adventure type race, but not run. Um, I mean, running can be incorporated, but not all just like she's like, I just don't get it. Like, I don't want to run an ultra marathon or I don't want to do X, Y, and Z, but I'd love to do something adventurous with you. So we're, we're seeking that. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's, you know, all of that has to do with activity and we're going to learn things from it. And we're going to get a chance to find the right thing together and then train for it, whatever that is, even if it doesn't involve a ton of physical activity, it might be navigation or, you know, or, you know, whatever. Um, but, but I think that's, that's a, a great point in, in starting small, and then 
you have those wins and then all of a sudden you want to keep going. Cause the one, the one thing that I initially wanted to do is like help people or uh, figure out a way, like the motivating factors, like how can I help people get motivated, right. To go do something. What I realized is I would, I would have to retire in a year if that was my full-time job, because you, it's hard to say, like you said, you're yelling at this, you know, plant, Hey, grow, grow, grow. And it's like, Hey, just chill out. Let me do my thing. But if you figure out things that work that can, that can, you know, give it more life, then you just do more of those things. Yeah. On, on that, um, my daughter goes to Montessori school and Montessori philosophies um, definitely influence my work, especially when I'm working with families and kids. But the role of a Montessori teacher when she's in a classroom or he's in a classroom is to just observe the child and see what they're gravitating towards naturally. And when they get that spark of joy of they're into sharks, let's say, and you go, you're into sharks. That's amazing. Let's go get the shark book or let's go get the shark puppets. Let's go get the shark teeth. And we're going to learn about uh, biology. We're going to learn about geography. We're going to learn about ecosystems. We're going to learn about culture. We're going to learn about social justice. We're going to learn about environmental forces that affect sharks. So they're going to learn all the subjects through their passion, their interest in that one topic. So it's much more when you're trying, you can't motivate someone, but you can and you can't really motivate yourself. You just have to observe when you have that spark and, and go with it. There's also something about what you're talking about with the, the habit stuff and playing small or not playing small, starting small is getting to the heart of the matter. So for the exercise experiment, the heart of the matter wasn't like that I wasn't doing pushups right or wrong or that I didn't have the right outfit or the right word. It was that I wasn't consistent. So train for consistency. And what I can be consistent about is 10 minutes a day of whatever. And then when I master that, then I can be consistent about something else. So really, and that's what I talk about with organizing too. People are like, what bins should I buy? And what closet system should I have? And I go, you need to learn how to make decisions about what belongs in your life. That's the heart of the matter. And if you can master that the stuff's going to fall into place. Like, yeah, a few bins will improve the thing. But when you're going through the piles, just does this belong in my life or not? And cultivating that decision-making. Yep. That makes sense. So how can people get in touch with you and find out more about Clear and Cultivate? Yeah. So uh, Clear and Cultivate, our URL is clearcultivate.com and same on Instagram. I'm at Patty Morrissey on Instagram. So I like to connect with people there. Haven't, haven't played too much around Clubhouse yet, but maybe that's coming. Um, yeah, I would love to hear if anyone is uh, attempting any of these tools, you know, introduce me to your alter ego or check out the daily review and, and see how that goes. So I can share some of those uh, resources with you, Joe. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Patty, for your time. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it.